we this morning are coming to the same God that Israel stood before in the Old Testament, the same God who sits in the same throne, who now through Jesus Christ invites his people really, really close. And so this morning we are coming really, really close to God. And so I invite you to pray with me as we draw near through his word. God, you're holy, and you descended on Mount Sinai in the form of fire. The mountain shook, and uh, now we've seen you once and for all descend to the person and work of Jesus Christ, and our souls cry out with praise as we contemplate your mercy and your humility and your love for us as you died on a tree. Thank you. Through the blood of Christ, we are brought near. Oh God, I pray that you would do a work this morning in your people through the preaching of your word. We come expectantly. You are the one who changes people's lives, and so change each of our lives this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, I was uh, doing some research this week on the topic that I would like to talk to us about today, which is the Ten Commandments. And uh, I found some pretty interesting things. There's this uh, building in, in Washington, Washington D.C. called the Supreme Court Building. And uh, although I have never been there, apparently people who have say that when you walk into the entrance of the main courtroom in the building, it's breathtaking. Supposedly the room has uh, 50-foot ceilings, and uh, if you follow your eyes up the walls to the ceiling at the very top, what you'll see is this picture of heavenly beings carved into the ceiling, making up one image of 18 different lawgivers from different times and cultures, all together seeking to establish a moral code. And then right at the very center, right above the chief of justice's seat, there's a figure balancing a rounded tablet containing 10 Roman numerals, and those 10 Roman numerals are actually uh, representative of the Ten Commandments. In other words, uh, the Ten Commandments that we're about to look at this morning are the words which make up the one document that has been the source of American law. I came across an article this week published by Cambridge University, which indeed is a secular university, and even the author of the article said this, and I quote, The Ten Commandments have been fundamental to the establishment of Western civilization. In other words, what I'm trying to show us this morning is that the Ten Commandments are relevant and that they not only matter to us on a civil or societal level, but digging a bit deeper into them, what I want to show us further this morning is that they also are to matter to us and are relevant to our personal lives. Let me ask you a question. What type of uh, thoughts or feelings come to mind when you think about the Ten Commandments? What type of God do you think of? Further, what type of people do you imagine in your head as you consider this topic or idea? Is there anything in your life story that influences your interpretation or take on the Ten Words? Jesus said some really interesting words in Matthew chapter 5. He said, know that I did not come to abolish the law, 
meaning get rid of it, but rather that I came to fulfill them. In other words, even for Jesus, who is the epitome of mercy and love, we have him respecting and seeking to uphold these 10 very things as the main goal of his life and ministry. What we need to know about the 10 commandments are that they are relevant and they are relevant even to the grace code of the New Testament. What I want to show us this morning pertaining to these 10 words is that these 10 commandments are not merely a set of rules. These 10 commandments are not merely a moral code. These 10 commandments are not merely a religious checklist of duties and or obligations, but rather that these 10 commandments are a gift from God to his people for two main reasons. Number one, for us to know and relate to him. And number two, for us to live with and relate to each other. This morning, we're going to be beginning a a two-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments. This week, I'd like to show you how they relate to God. Next week, we'll get to each other. But if you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning, specifically looking at verses 1 through 11. And I've titled the sermon, The Ten Commandments Reveal God and His Call to His People. I want to show you this. Three things as... It relates to this idea. Number one, I'd like to show you God's grace in the Ten Commandments. Number two, I'd like to show you the call for our heart in the Ten Commandments. And then lastly, I'd like to show you the the role of our words and deeds. God's grace, our heart, our words and deeds. We'll begin the time together by reading the text up front. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. Here we go. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, of these, of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is with you or within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you God's grace. Well, um, as our text begins here, you might notice how uh, in the first verse, Moses, who's the author here, is, is not bringing to us a new story, but rather continuing on with the one that he began to tell us last week in chapter 19. Israel here is now standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and last week, if you remember, uh, what they just got done seeing was the awe-stricken arrival of God. 
God descended on the mountain in the pillow of fire. There around the fire was a thick cloud of darkness and smoke. Then the mountain shook and a trumpet blasted. And while all this happened, Israel witnessed it. And the text says that the people saw all of it and trembled. In chapter 19, Moses, the covenant mediator, um, after meeting with the Lord, in verse 25, came down to the people to report all that God had personally said to them. This story, as we have been learning and studying, has been about the developing relationship between God and Israel, and now here we have the culmination of the special covenant relationship. All throughout chapter 19, there was one word that God used to address the many people in Israel. If you look back, you'll see it. It was the singular pronoun, you. And now here, look how he describes himself in verse 3. Me. God, in the most personal way, is drawing near and saying to his people, Israel, this is about you and me. I am revealing myself to, to you for you to know me and how we together are to be in relationship with one another. Self-proclamation was an integral part of any covenant-making treaty or promise. Last week, um, what did God do before this? He revealed himself and his holiness through supernatural flames and storms. This week, what is he doing? The same thing in a different way. He is revealing himself and his holiness, but now it is revealed, he is revealed through his spoken word. In other words, what we are learning this morning is that God is a God who acts and speaks to his people so his nature, nature and person can be personally known. These Ten major words or commandments are actually principles that reveal God and are meant to shape the behavioral life of the Israelites, keeping them within the bounds of the covenant relationship between them and Yahweh. Okay, James, did you just tell us or give us all this information to simply say that we are looking at a set of rules? Um, kind of, but not really. Why? Uh, well, because rules are not really what this is all about. Well, what then is this all about? This is about the holy God who has chosen out of his free grace to love and save and free a people and bring them into relationship with himself. Yes, God here is, is giving statutes and parameters to the covenant, obviously, but as he gives them to Israel here, what does he want them to remember and know above and beyond all else? Are you ready for the answer? It might blow you away. That his grace was given to them before this great law. Does that sound familiar? God wants Israel to remember that he is for them, not against them. How up until this point, all that he has done so far has been their gracious savior. This is a personal pursuit for a personal relationship initiated and upheld by grace. I was on the phone this week with a, uh, a pastor friend of mine, and uh, I was really humbled. Um, he opened up to me about some of his struggles 
uh, how hard it's been for him to stay the course of faithfulness and how he often judges himself and his ministry by, the, uh, by its results and success, really how, uh, how on what he can do for God. And, and we actually ended up talking about this story here. We learned about it last week. It's the same thing that we are being reminded again, once again, which is the fact that before my friend started a church, before he led a people, before he preached, made disciples, studied the Bible, prayed, got an education, or sought to obey obey God, God did what first? Loved him. It was God's Free love and free grace that bought and saved my friend. Thus his work and guaranteed status before God comes from Christ alone, apart from anything he can ever do. And then you, know, you want to know what he said to me? He said, James, I needed to hear that. And I said, me too. He said, James, I'm so quick to forget that. I said, uh, yeah, me too. I said, isn't the gospel so redundant? And he said, well, I never thought about it that way, but, but it is. Friends, what is the gospel redundant of? This very thing that God is indeed for us and that his grace is free. He wants us to know and get this, that the before anything, anything, or, or you and I are called to do anything, that, that his love has first come our way, that we did nothing to earn this, but rather for him to show how great his love is, he first saved us. This is the second week in a row, and the third time in the story, Moses mentions this idea, that God's grace came before the law. We got to get this. We gotta get this. This is the thing that we're prone to stray and wander from, which produces condemnation and performance-driven salvation, that grace came before the law. Verse two, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Get ready for the law. Grace is what wins people's hearts to God. Israel is not being given the law in order to become gods, but rather since they have already been redeemed and named as God's people, they are being given the law. The law of God is the way of life that God sets before those he saves and frees. Why or for what purpose? For them to know and enjoy him. To know and enjoy the original intention of created man. I know it's challenging to look at a set of lists and rules like this and view it as positive. But in order for us to do so, we must first remember this. What? The trustworthiness of God. That all God has done for Israel up into this part of the story is deliver them, protect them, provide for them, give them grace, forgive them, bless them, and assure them with promise. You see, we're tempted as people to see and interpret the Ten Commandments as a list of duties and rules. And in one sense they are, but that's all they'll ever stay if we don't know the giver personally. All the Ten Commandments will ever be without relationship with God, established and maintained by grace, is empty, hollow, lifeless, cold, oppressive, restrictive, judgmental, condemning, you name it. But what I want for us to see here in the story is that the giver of the law is also the savior of his people. Thus, 
God is giving it to Israel for them to know and enjoy their freedom. You might remember this back to the garden with Adam and Eve. Do you remember what God did after he created them, what he said? He said, Adam and Eve, I, I made you for all of this. I want you to enjoy everything. Look around. It's all beautiful. Everything is yours. Image me. Take delight in my creation. Have pleasure in my making of you. And as you enjoy all these things, you can know me. There's just one thing, Adam and Eve, that I want you to take heed of. You may eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. I think that we misinterpret this one rule in the same way that we do the Ten Commandments. How? By thinking that this is a restriction. My brothers and sisters, this is not a restriction as much as a boundary to maintain freedom. You see, the one rule in the garden for Adam and Eve was actually a guarantee of life. If you keep this one commandment, Adam and Eve, you will flourish and live. What we often forget is that a negative command is far more liberating than a positive command. Positive commands begin with the words, you shall, but they restrict us to one personal course of action, whereas a negative command, you shall not, leaves life open to every course of action except that one. But the problem with us is that we don't want boundaries. We want to be totally freed. But ever since the beginning of creation, even in the garden before the fall, mankind was created with boundaries in the same way that a train is created with boundaries. Just let the train be free. Well, do you know what happens when you let the train be free and you take away the tracks? It crashes. In the same way that a train is most free on its tracks, so are we within the bounds of the commands. What we need to know about the Ten Commandments is that they are a law of liberty which serves as a gateway to true human freedom found in the context of relationship with God. In other words, I heard one person say that the law preserves for us the delights of the garden. And so thinking about the law, the law biblically, it should not make us feel like our style is being cramped. It shouldn't make us feel like we're being um, unhealthily confined. It shouldn't create in us dread but rather understanding the law and the lawgiver himself, his heart and intention behind it. What should the law, the Ten Commandments of God do? They should fill us with joy. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day. Your commandments make me wise. Your testimonies are med my meditation. I hold my feet back from every evil way in order to keep your word. I don't turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. You are sweet, and your words are sweet as taste to my mouth. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Give me understanding to learn your commandments. I love them more than gold. I long for your commandments, O oh God. They are my delight. That's an appropriate view of the Ten Commandments having knowledge of God, Psalm chapter 119. My brothers and sisters, we need to recover a desire and delight for God's law. It's only possible by revisiting two things. Number one, who it is that gave it to us, 
And number two, recalling the original purpose of who we are as created beings. God, in all of his grace, didn't leave us in this life or with salvation and say, ah, you know what? I saved you. I've done enough. That's enough. Now you figure out your own. No, he says, I saved you and freed you, and now I'm going to show you how to stay free and enjoy me. Here are the rules and boundaries for the good life. What a refreshing take on the law. I'm wondering how um, up until this point of your story, you've thought about the Ten Commandments. Can you see how much of a difference it would make to know the one personally who made them? How um, we as humans are only able to to live the truly human life when we know and obey God, who is the trustworthy one displaying his trustworthiness on the cross. Amen? That was point number one, God's grace. I'd like to move now to point number two and show you his call for our heart. There it is there. Well, after um, prefacing the giving of the law with a reminder of God's grace and character, he goes on in verses three through four to uh, speak of the first two commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself the carved image, the likeness of anything that's in heaven above, in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. One of the things that um, we should know, which was common to the ancient people during this time, was for them to live and have three categories of gods. There was a category of the personal God, the category of the family God, and lastly, the category of the national God. And anyone who knows anything about Israel and their history knows that this is how Israel was tempted to view God the most, as their nationalistic savior. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel was constantly faced with the temptation of competing gods from uh, pagan people in pagan lands. As for example, 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles chapter 10, Dagon was known to be the personal god who promised provision. Another example, Judges and 1 Kings, Baal was a family god who represented fertility. At any given moment, if you were to come up to an ancient Israelite and ask them the question, hey, Israelite, do you believe in Yahweh? You can almost 100% guarantee that the answer would be yes. But here's the sad truth. Through Israel's history, we also know and can see that they did not believe in him alone. Meaning, That although Israel believed in God in that one compartment, they also shared their hearts and love with other gods. Majoritively speaking, Israel's life was more categorized by giving into the temptations of various idols and false gods present in foreign peoples and foreign lands. It's going to happen in in chapter 32 as we continue on through the narrative. What are they going to do? They're going to worship the golden calf. Where did they find the golden calf? That idea. In Egypt? A God present back where they used to live? God is calling for his people's allegiance of love in and from their hearts. He doesn't want to be compartmentalized. God doesn't want to be merely the God of politics for his people. He wants to be the God of everything. The first two commandments here 
are an illustration of the all-encompassing love affair that God desires for him and his people to share. Look at how he describes himself in verse 5. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, which also can be translated to mean zealous lover. And what we should know about his jealousy or zeal is that it does not necessarily refer to an emotion as much as to an activity, and in this case, an activity of violence as a result of a breach of the covenant bond. How is this not to be seen or interpreted here? Well, it's not to be seen as God being hot-headed or intolerant, but rather as God fighting for an exclusive relationship that is not willing to share his love with another God. This is not a foreign idea, my friends. We know this within the bounds of covenant marriage. The way husbands and wives enter into an agreement, the husband says, babe, you know this, but I'm just going to say it. It's just me and you. And the wife says, amen, babe. Uh, I love you. It's just me and you. We will not, within the bonds of our covenant bond, tolerate any other person. Adultery and the context of spirituality will not be tolerated within the relationship between God and his people. And then, for contrast, in verse 5, he says this, But I will show steadfast love to thousands who keep my commandments. Steadfast love to thousands who keep my commandments. God wants Israel's heart. This is a romantic, loyal, zealous, pure, devoted, undefiled covenant relationship of love. This is why God pursued and saved his people. For them to know him, have him, and he know them and have them. You see this desire in Yahweh for Israel. You see this desire for Christ in the church. Marriage is the illustration of the New Testament. Jesus knew the weight of this calling, the call of love. In Matthew chapter 22, the the Pharisees came to test him and said, hey, teacher, in a condescending way, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind. We're living in a different uh, time and culture than Israel. That's obvious. The most prevailing form of idolatry during their time was the worship of images, and so commandment number two would have had hit home for them. But here for us, it sounds a little bit foreign. I, I don't think that many of us here are tempted to visit the Hindu temple on the corner of Rockbridge um, uh, in 29 and, and, and attend a worship service. I hope not. Um, But that's actually not what this is all merely about. Uh, What we need to know about false god worship and idolatry is that it's not merely confined to bowing down to statues and or pictures, but rather pertains to our lifestyles and the temptations we face which run counter to which God desires our life to be and true worship to be. We may not be tempted to worship idols or pictures, though this second commandment, I uh, indeed has its place within the church. But we are all definitely tempted to be subject to the ideas and things in our culture which present themselves as all-satisfying and glorious. 
There are things in our life, world, and culture around us which seek to woo our hearts away from God, so to put our hope in them for things that only God is to be and bring. Here's some examples. Materialism, sexuality, sensuality, pride, success, safety, comfort, con- control, provision. When we, when we go to or look at these things and use them to fulfill these promises or the promise of life, this is the deeper idea present here. I looked up on the Webster di- Dictionary uh, this week, what is the different definition of idolatry, and here's what it said. Idolatry is the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing. Pretty good. Idolatry is anything that replaces the one true God. In the New Testament, John writes to a more modernized audience and speaking to the church in the secular culture, he says this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. So many things around you and me that tempt to grab our heart and attention and pull us away from exclusive devotion and allegiance to God. Think about the idea of money just for one second. Because I think it's something that all or many of us can relate to. What does money promise? Think about all the promises money brings. Money says, I'll give you comfort. Money says, I'll give you pleasure. Money says, I'll give you power. Money says, I'll give you safety. Money says, I'll give you success. Money says, I'll give you identity. The list goes on. You see, money is a good thing, but it's a dangerous thing because with it, our hearts are tempted to bow down and praise and pursue it for the false promises that it makes. God alone is the giver of all those things I just named. These two commandments here deserve 10 sermons. We're flying high at 30,000 feet. I'm brushing over them. But consider the point. God wants his people's hearts. God wants his people to love and worship and pursue him alone. If we are to escape modern idolatry, we must first recognize all the things around us that compete for our love and then um, be able to see the lie and then in the face of the lie, rebuke it. To reject it for the false lie that it, t- that it promises to give. You know this. I'm just reminding you this. In the end, nothing will satisfy but Christ himself. In the, in the end, no God, false God, anything besides God that is tempted to woo our hearts away from God will ever deliver or give us what our hearts long for them to give. And if they do, there'll be temporary fixes of pleasure which lead to the pit. And do you want to know what the sad thing is? And I include myself. Many of us know this, but still pursue these gods. What do we do? We know the holy God who alone fills. But what happens along the way? We're tempted to give in to other lovers. To take pleasure, pursue, or bound down to other things. I'm so glad we're not in the old covenant. 
uh, because there's consequences of law-breaking. But I turn with you and allow our hearts to look forward to the new covenant and pray that in the news I'm about to give you, you are filled with an abundance of joy. Where's the hope? Well, the joy and the hope is taken in the heart that we see exposed through Christ and the God of the New Testament where he demonstrates his heart for his people most greatly on the cross. In other words, in the Old Testament here, God says, I want your heart alone. You break it, there's consequence. In the New Testament, he he is so gracious, he sends his son, he says still, I want your heart alone, but we give it to the temptation, fall away, give our hearts to other things, but guess what he does? He says, my heart's still for you. Look at my son Jesus Christ who died for you on a cross. This is how zealous and jealous my love is for you, that even in your sin, and false idol worship, I am able to cover you with the blood of my son and my love. The holy God who was rebelled against in the garden enters into earth full of rebellious creation, lives a sinless life on their behalf, dies for them. They openly reject and mock him. On the cross he cries out, Father, forgive them. And there as he dies, he takes upon himself the full wrath and displeasure of God as a lawbreaker, though he was a lawkeeper. So to do what? Invite us into this great exchange of him keeping the law, us disobeying the law, of him dying and us living. What I'm trying to say to you, my brothers and sisters, is that the cross of Christ is for idolaters. The cross of Christ is for lawbreakers. The cross of Christ is for those who, who, who have cold hearts against God and have proven it over and over. The cross of Christ is for those who see their sin, they hate it, but keep on in it. The cross of Christ is for sinners. The cross of Christ is for you. The cross of Christ is for you. As Christ died on the cross, he thought of you and all of your sin and took upon himself every ounce and weight of God's wrath and displeasure for you so that your faith in him could be covered by his perfect righteous work. The cross of Christ is for you. The righteousness of God is for you. We indeed all have fallen short of God's law, broken at times without number, but the cross of Christ is for us. For we are fully given the pleasure of God, the sinless life and sinful death of Jesus Christ. Have you been touched by this love? The cross of Christ brings us to our knees with humility, knowing that we indeed have broken the law. But the cross of Christ produces in us a great song with rejoicing, knowing that God himself is our salvation. Beloved, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is how God's love was revealed, that he sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live him, uh, live through him. And love consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. For we love him because he first loved us. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. 
cross of Christ allows us to continue to return to the law of God. That was point number two. I'd like to finish now with point number three, which are our words and deeds. Well, um, in this last point, I'd like to finish by looking at commandments three and four. And uh, what you'll notice about commandment three, using the Lord's name in vain, is that it is a command concerning the mouth or words. And the next commandment, honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy, boiled down simply as a commandment of hands or deeds. In other words, what we need to know about the Christian life is that it consists of commands that honor God, both through deeds that are done and left undone. The main idea behind the Sabbath is not to work, a deed of omission, a deed left undone in order to honor God. Um, As we now have gone through the first two points, my hope here is that you are starting to see how these commandments are actually building off one another. In other words, here we have commandments concerning words and deeds. By and through our Savior's teaching, we know that words and deeds, our words and deeds, are ultimately a reflection of our heart, and that the heart, point number two, is only appropriately submitted to God when they grasp his grace and love, point number one. In other words, our words and deeds serve to validate if we truly and inwardly align with the will and intention of God. And I think it's safe to say that the majority of people here do truly long as Christians for their actions to validate their principles. And this is what, uh, from a large perspective, these, what these two commandments really do serve to do. Through examining our words and deeds, both through the things done and left undone, we are able to evaluate what lies beneath the surface, which reveals to us yet another use of the law. What is it? That the law is a mirror, meaning that the law doesn't only show us God, reveal God, but the law also shows us or reveals ourselves. We look at the law, we see God, but then we see the holy rigor of the law, and we're able to see ourselves, which is actually one of the most beautiful things about the Sabbath day, that we, for one day, are called by God to stop, slow down, and think about God and all of his holiness and remember who he is. And then we, as we gather together as God's people, considering his holiness after taking a deep dive of introspection, judging ourselves against the law, find what? The very thing we hate, that we actually don't live the lights that we ought to live, which drives us to our knees and exposes our need for God and his grace. Then the beauty of the Sabbath once again, recognize our need, the holiness of God and his eagerness for grace. This is the rhythm of grace, the Sabbath, every day, every week that comes to us, a new morning that comes to us, Each morning, what happens to us each week? We leave this place after considering the holiness of God. And what do we say to ourselves? We're going to do it this time. We're we're in here. We're going to do it this time. And it is right for us to say that, to make a vow to God and say, I want you. I've seen you in your holiness. I've seen your law in all of its holiness. I want you, God. But what happens? Let's be honest. Minutes, moments, hours, the same day after leaving this worship service, what happens? We end up doing those things that we don't want to do. We end up, after committing to God and saying, I want you, falling off. And then we do it again. 
And then Saturday comes, and we're hungry and thirsty for the gospel. And so we come to this place for this grace and this God who doesn't keep us far off because he alone is holy, but in his holiness invites sinners to himself through the death of his son. This is why we're here this morning. What are we doing? This is why we gather each week. We are thinking about the holy God, considering his holy law, and remembering and counting on grace. My brothers and sisters, the same grace that called us from the beginning is the same grace that keeps us now into the end. And so what's the good news of the gospel for us this morning? Is that the holy and perfect lawgiver is also for his people, the holy and perfect law keeper. Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he kept it for you and me. And instead of being rewarded for it on our behalf, he took the penalty of breaking it so that we in exchange would live and continually approach God through this way of life. The good news of the gospel is that when filthy talk comes flying out of our mouth, when we speak lightly or irreverently about Christ or his church, when we fail to trust God and work on the Sabbath, when we worship other things or other people and pursue them with our hearts and give our hearts away to false idols, God loves us so much that he delights to cover us with the righteousness of Christ his son because that's how he is most exalted. Before the law, Satan wants us to stand condemned. No one can stand, he says, and he's right. If we were to stand alone, we could not stand in front of the holy God, but we do not stand alone as his children. We are covered by our greater brother, the great high priest who's made sacrifice. We're clothed in his righteousness and granted justified status. It is by and through the work of Jesus Christ that we are promised God's love and call to know him through his law. My brothers and sisters, I hope that this morning you have seen that the law of God is good. And not only because we know the giver, but ultimately because we know the keeper. And I pray that knowing the keeper would grant us the grace to obey so that we would thrive in the way that God intended us to since the beginning. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you you get all the glory because you do all the work. Never once have we earned it. Never once can we earn it. But you get all the glory because you did all the work. And we, dis- we, we, we see your heart displayed for us as you, Christ, died for us on a tree and rose again from the grave to grant us the promise of life through your work. Oh God, I pray that you might be glorified through your spirit working in us to obey and know you and the grace that you have in abundance for us eternally. We praise you in Jesus' name.